Our sermon text today is Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. The Bible says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Join with me, let us pray. Our gracious Lord, help us this day as we consider the message that our Lord Jesus preached to his audience, that we might compare it to the message that is so frequently preached in our own day. And Lord, may this bring us to repentance as well and advance your kingdom, our Lord Jesus came to announce. Grant us this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Just just the thought of me preaching brings them to tears. That's bad. I haven't even started yet. All right. Last week in our, our study of Matthew's Gospel, we saw once again how Matthew is telling the story of, Je- of Jesus as the story of Israel retold. In particular, we, we saw Matthew, he, he, he's presenting Jesus as a, a new and a greater Moses who, as we will begin to see today, starts to form a new Israel around himself. As we come to our text today, which follows on the heels of Jesus testing in the wilderness, we begin to see how that comes about when Jesus launches his Galilean ministry. And what we're not told in our text, but which the Gospel of John makes clear, is that between Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and the commencement of his ministry in Galilee... Jesus first spends some time ministering in the southern province of Judea. But after John gets thrown into prison there, Jesus takes that as his cue to move to the northern province of Galilee, far from the Judean authorities in the south. Now from that time on, Jesus is going to make some periodic trips to Judea, especially in obedience to the law uh, for the annual feast. But for the most part, Galilee will from then on be Jesus' home base of operation in announcing the coming of God's kingdom. He's going to spend more time up here than any place else. Now, interestingly, Galilee becomes not only the starting point of Jesus' mission to Israel, But later on, also the starting point of the disciples' mission to the Gentiles, 
When Jesus summons them to a mountain in Galilee to give them the great commission to make disciples of the Gentile nations. As we're going to see today, none of this is a coincidence. It's simply another example of Matthew showing us not only how the beginning of his gospel foreshadows the end, but also another preview of Jesus' eventual mission to the Gentiles, which has been foreshadowed as we've seen from the start. Now, before we look at how all this works out, we first need to begin by talking once more about the connection between John the Baptist or the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus regarding how the two are, are, are intertwined in yet one more way than what we've seen thus far. And I say this because this is what we see at the opening of our text in verse 12 when Matthew writes, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. To grasp what's going on here, we need to understand how the ministries of John and Jesus overlap. As we, as we, we've talked about this already, as we know from Luke's gospel, John and Jesus are relatives whose lives are linked from the, from the beginning, even before the two are born. And we know John is six months older than Jesus and will precede Jesus in ministry to prepare the way for Jesus' greater ministry. Okay? For that reason, in our first encounter with John in Matthew's gospel, you remember we were introduced to John when he came on the scene announcing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the same way, therefore, we read at the end of our text today that Jesus makes the same announcement at the start of his ministry. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Their message, in other words, is one and the same. Both men have as their mission the announcement of the kingdom of heaven. John leads the way and Jesus follows not long thereafter. Now as we're going to see as we progress, the same is going to be true of their ministries. They're going to, they're going to uh, 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 weave together, they're going to work together. What I mean by this is John's ministry not only comes first, but it's going to foreshadow Jesus' ministry by the way both men will follow a similar trajectory. We see this in our text when we read that John's ministry incites antagonism, thus leading to his arrest and eventual death. Hence, in the same way, Jesus' ministry will also incite opposition, thus leading to his eventual arrest and execution as well. Okay? So there's going to be a lot of similarities between the two. However, lest we think Jesus' ministry is simply a repetition of John's, we must recall that John announced Jesus' ministry would be greater than his own. Whereas John baptized merely with water, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. In this way, John's ministry foreshadows Jesus' ministry, but Jesus is going to have a greater ministry, which will in other ways be different. Okay? What I mean is 
the relationship between John and Jesus is going to be very much like the relationship between Elijah and Elisha. So we noted in our introduction to John, John's dress, his manner of life, uh, and location of his ministry were all intended to remind us of Elijah, the lone prophet who dressed in camel's hair, alone in the wilderness, and denounced the leaders of his time while calling the nation to repentance and warning of judgment to come. By contrast, Elisha received a double portion of the Spirit before setting out on his ministry. And he receives a double portion of the Spirit because Elisha is going to gather a group of disciples around himself to form a faithful remnant or new Israel within the larger apostate Israel. And Elisha's disciples were then called to carry on his ministry and mission after the fall of the northern kingdom. So in the same way, we're going to see Jesus will do something similar. There's a lot of overlap between John and, and Jesus, but, but where there's, there's, there's going to be progression with Jesus. Whereas John is, is sort of like the paradigmatic lone prophet in the wilderness... Jesus calls disciples to himself, visits synagogues, travels from town to town, and largely carries on a mission of mercy while gathering disciples to carry on his ministry after he is gone. And what's surprising about Jesus' ministry is that like Elisha's before him, Jesus will extend his ministry to boundaries that include Gentiles. To explain. First thing we're told of Jesus' ministry is the location of it. Soon as John is thrown into prison in Judea to the south, Jesus heads to the northern province of Galilee, where he grew up. But instead of going to Nazareth, which lay west of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus moves to the far north, to the city of Capernaum, which sets along the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. From this strategic position, Jesus is able to avoid unnecessary confrontation with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem until his movement has time to get started. What I want us to understand today is that the significance of Galilee as a starting point is based on more, though, than its distance from Judea and its capital. The significance of Galilee as a starting point for Jesus' ministry, is rooted in the status of Galilee as it's recorded in the Old Testament. To explain, when we read in the text that Jesus goes from Judea to Galilee, we don't think much of it. We just make a middle note of it. We we record it in our minds as if it's mere factual information. 
If, for example, we have a layout of first century Israel in our minds, we might uh, go further by noting Jesus goes from the south to the north and perhaps paint a picture in our minds regarding the location of Capernaum on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. But what I want us to understand is that by telling us that Jesus goes from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, Matthew intends that we call to mind the history of Galilee as it's recorded in the Old Testament. To put it another way, when we hear of San Francisco or Los Angeles or uh, or Las Vegas or Detroit or Appalachia or Powell County or Gary County, whatever, Mental images and associations with those locations come to our minds regarding our knowledge of those places, perhaps experience in those places, friends who live there. What I'm saying today is that the same would have been true of those who first heard Matthew's words shortly after they were recorded. When we keep that in mind, suddenly we have a, uh, we'll have a far greater appreciation for what Matthew is telling us about where Jesus begins his ministry. And I say this because whereas today we think of Galilee as, you know, part of the Holy Land, the place where our Lord Jesus grew up and conducted his ministry. The first century Jews and Jewish Christians who first read Matthew's words thought very differently about the region. What they knew of it from the Old Testament was that Solomon had gifted Hiram, king of Tyre, 20 cities from the region as payment for supplies for his building projects. In response, Hiram complained he got swindled on the deal because he considered the towns of Galilee worthless. Hebrew word Kabul. There's, there's a town in Galilee to this day by that. It's worthless. Later, when Assyria attacked the northern kingdom, Galilee was the first region to go into captivity. It was then later repopulated with Gentiles so that it was considered kind of a, 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 a borderland, not quite fully Gentile, but not quite fully Jewish either. As a result, Galilee did not have a very good reputation in Jesus' day. What's significant, however, is that the prophet Isaiah foretells a judgment that's going to come upon the land of Israel in which darkness will come upon the land for those who transgress God's law. And yet in the midst of the darkness... There's going to be a new dawn in the unlikeliest of places. And therefore, when Matthew quotes Isaiah's prophecy and applies it to Jesus, he's saying that the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is taking place in Jesus' ministry. Here's the significance of this event. 
If you go back to Isaiah's prophecy, I couldn't read the whole thing. It actually starts back in chapter 7. But if you go back to Isaiah's prophecy and read it in context, you learn that when God causes a new day to dawn in Galilee, his prophecy of hope simultaneously condemns Judah and its leaders. After all, you know, one would think that God, if God was started new, it would be with, down in Judah with its capital, uh, where the throne of the house of David resides. That's where God would start anew, we would think. But when the kingdom is announced first to Galilee of the Gentiles, of all places, it sends a powerful signal to the leaders in Jerusalem that God is bringing judgment upon them for their wickedness. So we heard in our first reading from Deuteronomy 32 earlier. God warned that if Israel worships idols, he and to provoke him to jealousy, he will provoke them to jealousy by going to the Gentiles. That's what he did in the days of Elisha. And he's doing it again in the days of Jesus. In Galilee, Jesus preaches the coming of God's kingdom and gathers around himself, as we'll see next week, what will become the makings of a new Israel, which will replace the apostate Israel that eventually consents to his death. Here's the thing I want us to see today. At the end of our text, Matthew records the words with which Jesus begins his public ministry. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we hear those words, we think Jesus is calling people to confess their private sins so that they can go to heaven someday when they die. But in that historical context, that is not at all what those words meant. First, in the Bible, the kingdom of heaven is not some place people go when they die. So that, that wouldn't even make any sense in context because Jesus is announcing the kingdom as something that is approaching. It's something that is near or at hand and is thus, it's arriving in his ministry. And that's why Jesus calls people to repentance. Because when God draws near to establish, with the intent to establish his rule on earth as it is in heaven, people must shape up or else experience his wrath. In the case of Israel, the wrath to which Jesus referred doesn't refer in the first instance to what will come of people after death. But what is going to come upon the nation of Israel by the hands of the Romans in AD 70? In other words, Jesus' announcement of the kingdom isn't talking about the hereafter, though that could be implied too. But he's speaking more about the here and now of his day. And he's warning the nation, which is at that point hell-bent on rebellion, to change their ways and follow him. By becoming citizens of his kingdom, which was at that moment breaking into history. 
Okay? That's what our text today is all about. To understand why all this is very important to us, in the time remaining today, I want us to contrast the message Jesus announced to the generation in which he lived to the message that is often announced by the church of our day to the generation in which we live. To explain. In his book, Measures of the Mission, Rich Lust notes that today virtually all we ever hear proclaimed is the gospel. By which most people mean the message about how to go to heaven when you die. The gospel today is you're a sinner. Jesus died for your sins. Trust him and you will have a blissful life after death. That, in summary, is the gospel the church today preaches. As true as that might be, Problem is, that message leaves a whole lot of questions unanswered. What does that message say about the call for repentance proclaimed by both John and Jesus? And what does life after death have to do with the coming of the kingdom, which Jesus announced was at hand or near? And what does that truncated message have to do with the church and what we're doing here today? In other words, if that's the gospel, what is the church for? Isn't it just about me and Jesus? For that matter, what is the Bible for? Why does it have to say so much about history, about the people of Israel, about the nations, civil government, economics? If the thrust of the gospel is the salvation of individual souls, why is there so much unrelated material? Shouldn't the Bible be a whole lot shorter than what it is? If the gospel is just about how to go to heaven when you die, that means the gospel is really irrelevant to most of life. And it means the church isn't necessary and the kingdom isn't necessary. The gospel is just, it's fire insurance to keep you from going to hell when you die. But what does it have to do with our lives in the here and now, in the time we live before we die? To put it plainly, a gospel that leaves the world unchanged, that says nothing about broken families and poverty and drug addiction and tyranny, is hardly the good news Jesus came to announce. In other words, Jesus didn't merely proclaim the gospel. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, of God's rule on earth. And Jesus' proclamation of the gospel entailed more than mere faith. It also entailed repentance from sin in the here and now. That repentance in turn is intended to bring about change, first in people's lives, afterwards in their families, communities, and eventually the nations of the world. That's what the gospel of the kingdom Jesus came to announce promises to do, because the gospel of the kingdom promises to renew and transfigure the entire creation, eventually resulting in nothing less than a new heaven and new earth. 
What I'm arguing today is that failure to grasp this fact, I think, explains many of the problems that we face today as a people. Failure to grasp the comprehensive nature of the gospel Jesus announced explains why, even though Christians have large numerical significance in America today, we have relatively small impact on our culture. Because we have forgotten the gospel is about more than the hereafter. It's about the here and now. Rich Lust explains it all like this. This is a lengthy quote, but bear with me. One reason so much of the evangelical church has been susceptible to wokeness and progressivism the last few years is due to ways we have truncated the gospel. Because so many evangelicals have privatized the call to me and Jesus' salvation, most preachers have failed to apply the Bible broadly. Even if we insist on personal piety and law-keeping, many have drifted into public and social antinomianism. Because it is thought that the Word of God is not comprehensive in scope and authority, there is a void of application that must be filled. After all, even if we say the Bible does not apply to public and political issues, we are still public and political creatures. Because we have not taught the Word of God governs all of life, That void of application has been filled by progressive forms of social justice, by wokeness, by whatever the state or celebrity influencers tell us to do. This is why so many evangelical Christians who should know better have so easily caved to COVID tyranny, climate change hysteria, socialist economic policies, and so on. Wokeness is a counterfeit of the kingdom of God, counterfeit Torah, counterfeit wisdom. As G.K. Chesterton pointed out even a century ago, progressivism is just the old Christian virtues gone mad. The church today is in desperate need of an all of the Bible for all of life program. So we're going to see as we progress in our study of Matthew's gospel, the gospel of the kingdom Jesus announces will be just that, and all of the Bible for all of life program. The gospel John proclaimed that got him into trouble with authorities. It's the same gospel Jesus will announce that will likewise get him into trouble with authorities, eventually leading to his death. If you think about it, had Jesus only told people that by faith in him they could go to heaven when they die, would, would, would anybody have taken an issue with that? He would have never been crucified for that message because his message would have been irrelevant to the authorities. But by proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come because the king has come and therefore everyone had better get their act together or face his judgment, Jesus presented a threat to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judea just as he does to the rebellious leaders of our own day. As Paul tells us in in Acts, before the kingdom's arrival, God had overlooked times of ignorance. But with the kingdom's arrival, he commands all men everywhere to repent. That's the gospel John proclaimed. It's the gospel Jesus proclaimed. The gospel Paul proclaimed. The gospel the early church proclaimed, causing people to complain that the early Christians were turning the world upside down. What I'm arguing today is that if we understand Jesus' gospel of the kingdom aright, so that we begin once more to proclaim it in our own day, we'll find it's lost none of its power. It's still capable of turning the world in which we live upside down as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, teach us the gospel and give us wisdom and courage to live it and to proclaim it in our own day. And Lord, cause your kingdom to come, that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's continue to worship the Lord by bringing forth his tithes and our offerings.